Howdy, friends. Welcome to the XD Podcast, a show that explores how design shapes the way we experience brands, products, services, and our everyday lives. As usual, I'm your host, Tony Dosat. Whether you're joining me for the first time or have come back for more, I want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. And if you find value in this show, I would be honored if you took a moment to share this episode, hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening, or left a review. It's always greatly appreciated. And with that, what do you say we just jump right into the interview? Here we are with Ben Newell. Thank you so much for being here on a Saturday, sitting down with me. Before we start, I just have to say that you have maybe the greatest music collection of records <laughs> ever. Um, if you if you follow him on Instagram, you'll see that this guy's just collection is like boggling. So what are you what are you uh, spinning right now? What are you playing? Oh man, uh, I just got on Discogs. This is a record place like. Uh market studio and so i've been like buying all this stuff from the early 2000s when vinyl was kind of dead and oh yeah uh, stuff you couldn't get so like ray and christian um man i just got will butler who's uh the other part of arcade fire uh he's the other brother oh, no from arcade fire and his album was amazing um from just a couple years ago uh, but Leon Bridges is just uh, good things. The latest record is it's just gets so played good. constantly in our house, constantly. Yeah. Do your kids like the LP thing? Like, yeah, you know they got into it. They uh, it was really under um, my own kind of laziness because listening to records. One of the things you forget is that it means getting up every three songs and uh, turning the record over if you want to yeah. keep listening to it. So I had to get the kids into like, hey kids. Go flip the record over. Uh, so they had to get that figured out pretty quick. Um, but yeah, they get into it. Family, you know, Friday night is like our time. We listen to records. And oh, that's hang cool. Out. Yeah, it's fun, man. So and thank you for the compliment on the way. That means a lot to us. Oh, collection. of course. Sure. <laughs> I I remember running into you at, at the Alan Stone concert, and I was like, oh yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he's a jam. Um, so let's dive into some goodies. Sure. You and I used to work together um, on Tripcase. It's an itinerary management app, and with that and beyond that, what's a little background on you, what you do now, and how you got there? Sure. Um, well, today, I'm the vice president of product at RewardStyle, which is a, a technology platform for influencers in the influencer marketing space, uh, helping them monetize their content, and uh, really, you know, people we work with are a bunch of entrepreneurs who have decided to um, start quit their day jobs and really do what they love, and, and we support them in doing that. Um, so it's a new technology platform. But getting to that point in my career is, um, you know, I think lots of people ask me about product, like how do you get into product management? How do you, you know, kind of escalate into that? Uh, my story is not too dissimilar from lots of people. I was an engineer by training. I got my degree in industrial engineering. Illinois now calls that systems engineering, and I think that that's pretty indicative of how I think about things. Uh, I tend to be very big picture. And that served me quite well in my career to, to move into product management. But, you know, my first few years were in consulting and custom software development. Oh, really? Uh, and then kind of found my way into our research and development labs area at Sabre and, uh, and then stumbled upon Tripcase with a great group of people who were working on that. 
and uh, and really just pushed it from there. And my desire to th- see things get better and see things holistically really pushed me towards product. And uh, over time, I I started to really care a lot about the experience of making software. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's kind of led me to today. What methodology or, or style or approach do you take for product management? Yeah, uh, I have created my own little... Uh, style, but generally it revolves around the agile philosophies and principles of product management. Um, you know, transparency is really important to me. Uh, Customer-focused uh, research is a big part of what I like to do mm. to make sure that what we're building are the right things. In almost any situation in software development, your investment—you wish it was more. And so, every single thing you decide to do, you decide to put time against. Um, I, I love fail fast and I totally agree with that, but I want to fail less often. Yeah. Uh, and we can do that with advanced work and some research to really make sure we understand our customers and, and what they're looking for. So, uh, you know, those are some of the core elements of the philosophies I practice from a product management perspective. And, and that is something that I, that I sort of live by is that, that failure is not the opposite of success. It's just uh, a stepping stone to success. And it's true if you do everything after that right. So you can win at failing, and you can fail at failing. Yeah, that's really well said. Uh, I might steal that from you, Tony. That's really good. Please, it's uh, We spend a lot of time thinking about how to be successful with the things that we build. And as designers and as product management, architecture, uh, developers, we really want to make sure that we get it right. And I think that that initial piece is what drove a lot of people towards this fail fast because when you, when you have that approach, you tend to overthink things. You tend to analyze them for long lengths of time and, and really only um, put yourself out there with your product when you feel that it's perfect or when you feel that it's right. And so, you know, fail fast and some of the agile methodologies came from the fact that, well, you're probably never going to get that right the first yeah. time. Uh, no matter how hard you think about it. And so get something out there so that you can start learning from that and then really perfect that over time uh, with customer feedback. And, you know, these days that sounds, uh, at least to me anyway, as like so basic and so, well, how else would you do it? Um, But I come across people in our community or I come across situations in my own company where it's like, whoa, 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 we're not doing that. Uh, And we need to make sure that we are. And so even though those things feel um, fairly common or or fairly obvious, you still got to work to make sure that they happen. What is your team comprised of right now? I actually actually really love my team structure today. When I came to Rewards, I had an opportunity to build out my team, kind of define how I wanted it to exist. And so I have product management and design, um, pretty pretty core uh, UX team. But I also have two other components, which are maybe a little different that I really like, which is customer success. So our, our support team, as you might think of them. Uh, and over time, I've had our business intelligence team uh, work with me as well and work in reporting to me. So um, those might seem a little odd at first, but when you think about that philosophy that I just shared, which is how do we connect with customers? How do we make sure we listen to what's happening in the market? You really get both the quantitative and qualitative versions of that via those teams. Yeah. And uh, it's been something, it, again, it's a little weird. It's not something that every product manager, would I would expect to have. 
Um, but I really enjoy it because it makes sure that we're connected to our customers. How do you inspire your team to sort of all work together with all of these different departments? Are they bouncing around or is it siloed? We're, we're a small enough company. We have about 250 people worldwide today. Oh, wow. That it allows us to really connect with each person inside the company as a, as a product manager. And I really like this size. It's really nice for me. Um, you asked about how I inspire teams. For me, that's my, that's my voice. That's my personal connection. Um, I love to speak. I love to spend time in front of the teams talking about why we do things, mm-hmm. really helping them understand who our customers are, putting faces on those customers, putting real problems that those customers are experiencing, um, and then laying out a path and a direction that they can see as to how we want to try to help them solve those problems. Now that that path is still a little foggy as they look down it, you know, I don't like to lay down a very prescriptive, this is exactly what we want to do. I like to lay down a little bit uh, more strategic and longer term direction so that people can understand where we want to go. But at the same time, give them the latitude to feel that they can define that path. Um, when you talk about inspiring people, to me, it's about giving them clear direction on on what that looks like, but at the same time, the latitude to define that for themselves and leverage their own skills and their own backgrounds and their own uh, practices and bring those to the team and really help the team think about how we push those things forward. So uh, inspiration for me is is really that personal connection. And so the size of the company is important for me. Yeah. It gets harder and harder the more people that are in the company, like something like, Saber, you know, 10, 12, 13,000 people. Sure. I mean, that is just a mountain. Yeah. And it's, you know, relative. That's still like a medium sized company, yeah, I right? Guess so. I mean, you could imagine 100,000 people companies. Um, yeah. I did that for a few years of trying to evangelize product management at Saber and trying to push that forward. Um, and it's tough, uh, especially when you take. You know, the way I feel most effective is with that personal connection. And so it's a lot of work and and getting around to each of the teams. There are great strategies that, you know, people have uh, deployed at at those size companies to help them share that message, whether it be video or whether it be, um, you know, kind of the written uh, written word. Uh, I was just reading recently about uh, a CEO in startup space who had taken the time to write a weekly message every Friday of just, Here's my thoughts. Here's what I saw happen this week. Um, here's what's happening inside our company. And, and a very kind of loose just connection that they could form with people. So, you know, if you can't touch every person or talk to every person individually, there are still great ways to help connect. Yeah. Just be human, really. Yeah. yeah. Especially because we're, we're all designing for humans. Something really cool that I heard that I think MailChimp does is they actually print out their users on these massive posters with all these different words and bios and they sort of become their personas and uh, they, they point to that on a daily basis. You know, these are the people that we're designing for. Yeah. And I think there's some power to that because a lot of times when designing, we, uh, we forget and, and we get a little too close to the canvas as it were. Yeah. I, I was at uh, Airbnb a few years back and they had, their personas printed out and they brought in Disney animators uh, to really put this like beautiful visual against 
their personas. That's really and cool. They really push that. I just uh, uh, one of my team members, David Reams, he teaches up at UTD, and he asked me to come up and do a session on persona creation and how valuable it is. And I think you hit at the heart of it, which is we tend to either one way or the other we start designing for data yeah. and developing for the data. How do we move these numbers? Which you know, you, you need to do A-B testing, optimization. These tools give us an opportunity to design for data. Or you go the other way and you end up in lots of cases, especially if you're close to something and you love what you do, you design for yourself. Uh, mm-hmm. And you're like, well, I would really love this. Or that would really make me happy if our product did this. Uh, and neither of those are very good. Yeah. And so personas help you kind of land in the middle there where you do continue to have that human presence uh, but at the same time, they're informed with data, and they, they uh, can really help you make sure you get it right. For reward style, is it is it a living, um, evolving persona, or does it stick for like a year or a six-month sort of thing? How often do you check that and say, okay, is this does this still ring true for the humans that we're designing for? Yeah, we've got a couple different customer sets, and... You know, we've got our consumers via the Like to Know It product, which is our consumer application. And the consumer changes a lot as that grows quickly, right? Adding a bunch of new users to that, that one changes more frequently and it's harder to keep a good persona like informed. We, we, we tweak it, we evolve it, but that one changes a lot more. In our, uh, what we might call B2B space or, you know, just thinking outside of our business in the B2B world, they tend to stay a little longer. For us, that would be influencers or that would be big retailers or brands who we would work with. But that tends to stick around for about a year, I would say, is about enough time where we want to be sitting down with it again and kind of mm-hmm. reviewing it. But those tend to stay a little bit longer. Well, quite frankly, you just have less number of customers than you do on the <laughs> consumer side. Right. Uh, and so it, the consumer side can change you know, millions of people in a year. And so that, that certainly evolves your profile of who you're designing for. I'm not the first to say it, but I definitely think that there's some truth to this where we're all designers. You know, some of us might have designer in our title, but in, in, in effect, we're all moving this thing in this design capacity. Do you think that's true? You talked about experience design and kind of your, your opening podcast and the, exper- the, the experience and what that means. And I believe across a company uh, that touches everything and the product is a big part of that. So the experience that your customers have is informed by the marketing, is informed by obviously your product and the the user experience inside of that. Uh, It's also informed by your customer service and the the, the, uh, support that they get later. And everyone should be thinking about what that full experience is that your customers have. And so in our product and design space, yes, I do think that's true. I absolutely think that everybody needs to consider how we're designing that experience. I've often, inside my own team and across other parts of the organization over my career, we've tried to draw lines between UX and product management. And I have found that it's one of the hardest lines that I've tried to draw. Mm. People like... People like clear guidance on what their roles and responsibilities are. Uh, It has value, for sure. And in some cases, it's pretty easy to draw those lines. But I have found that between 
UX design and product management, it's the hardest line I've tried to draw. And in fact, at this stage, kind of given up on it and just said like, hey, you've got expertise and experience in this particular side of it. You've got expertise and experience over here. I want you both to work on it together and bring both of your expertise and skill sets to the table to make that successful. So yes, I do think everybody ends up being a designer, but at the same time, recognizing that UX designers have expertise and a skill set mm-hmm. and a and training in some very specific areas and sometimes that's hard for people to cross those lines yeah. and it's important for uh, designers to to feel that recognition of their expertise as well. How much of your role is strategy looking forward with the product and how do you plan that out like road mapping etc. At the VP level, so I have directors of product management, and then they have product managers under them. And at the at the VP level, really almost all of my work is around strategy and helping our teams understand where we want to take our products. How do you plan strategy is always a tough <laughs> question. And I'll always have uh, people across the organization come and say, hey, I'd really like to help provide some thoughts or or sit in on some of these strategy discussions. So can you just can you plug me into that? And the answer is always yes, I want your feedback. I want everybody to feel like they're part of the strategy. But despite your thoughts of how it might function, there is no strategy meeting. Like mm. sometimes I might take dedicated time to sit down and and uh, really hone my thoughts on what those things look like. But strategy is occurring all the time in every meeting. It's occurring in the stand-up where I get a chance to listen to the teams and the problems that they're facing. It's occurring when I'm out at an event meeting customers. It's occurring uh, as we work closely with our marketing counterparts on how we craft message. And so it's tough to really say, oh, strategy occurs in this one place. Uh, It's occurring all the time and helping inform where you want to drive those things. So how do you convey it? How do you bring everybody involved? I have found from a product perspective that a roadmap is a great way to do that. Gives everybody clear understanding of where we want to go. But you can structure roadmaps in a way that they have less rigor and less date-driven than I think lots of people are used to seeing. I have always said for our roadmap that within three months, we're about 80% accurate. Within six months, we're about 60% accurate. And beyond six months, we're about 20% accurate against those roadmaps. And so setting clear expectations with everyone in the organization about what this thing really means, it's not a Gantt chart. It's not a specific uh, set of deadlines for the organization. It is directional. And in turn, what I have found that a nice way to convey that is via just the form that it takes I'll create this great big wall of post-it notes, and you probably remember this too oh, yeah. from our days. But um, I've continued to do that, and I have found it to be really helpful. And so I lay out streams uh, for our organization, kind of loosely based around the capacity of our teams or our investment. Kind of put that on its side over time. And then rough kind of how long do we want to invest in this thing? So maybe we want to invest in it for a couple months. Um, let's lay that out. And then the next thing after that, we think that's a little bigger. We're probably going to have to invest in it for four months. But I don't spend a ton of time on that because beyond six months, it's 20% accurate. Yeah. And so I've always used that as a great way to convey transparently what we're doing. 
putting it up on the wall. Everyone has it in a spreadsheet and I'm sure everybody says, oh, well, everyone has access to this Google Sheet or everyone has access to this drive and they can pull it up anytime they want and look at it. But I bet if you looked at how many people actually pull it up and look at it, it's quite small. And so I have found printing it out big, we're talking, you know, 12 feet by six feet big. Yeah. And pasting it on the wall right where everyone walks by, to me, is one of the most effective ways to communicate that more clearly and give everyone every day a sense of where we're heading. And then doing it in post-it notes says, I'm going to change it. Right. We're going to take these down. Uh, We're going to put these other ones up. That, to me, has been a really great way to convey the roadmap, which in turn is a a reflection of your strategy. That's really cool. I couldn't agree more with being able to visualize it, you know, on a huge wall. And that's such a good point, the post-it note, like what that represents as this can be moved and moved rather easily. When we're talking about ideas, there's some industry terms I'm going to throw out there that might make some people cringe because they're overused. So there's some ideas you come to the table with that are like sort of blue sky thinking, and then the others that are like low-hanging fruit. How do you validate and prioritize those? When, when some people are really jazzed by the blue sky stuff because it's cool and it's, and it's forward thinking, but then this low-hanging fruit stuff's like, we got to get this done because it's easy, it's quick, it's low effort, but it might not have a huge impact. Yeah. I think this has been one of the hardest challenges of my career is to, to combine these two things together into a structure of the the hard things that take a long time to do but are really differentiated and really unique and and they're hard and others can't do them and so by you tackling them you create some differentiation whereas at the same time you recognize that you didn't get that product perfect the first time you rolled it out back to our philosophy and so how do i continue to iterate on that in small improvements that make that better and how do i deal with those low hanging fruit I have to say, I don't have a perfect answer for this. It's very challenging. <laughs> <That's fair. laughs> and it's the constant kind of back and forth. I've used the analogy many times of uh, a story I heard, and I wish I could remember exactly where it was from, but I don't think it's totally necessary. It was a professor in front of a class, and he laid out a big glass jar, and he put big rocks in it and filled it up to the top and asked everyone if the jar was full, and they all said Yes. And then he got out a bunch of medium-sized rocks, and he poured those in, and they filled around the big rocks, and he asked if it was full, and everyone said yes. And then he got out a jar of sand, and he poured that in, and it filled in around the medium rocks and the big rocks, and uh, again, then asked if it was full, and everyone said yes. So what I like to try to keep that uh, mantra for our roadmap, which is let's lay out those big rocks, or uh, sometimes I refer to them as anchors. These are the big initiatives for the company that we have to maintain a focus on in order to be successful, but they are, they are going to take a long time. They are big things that require really hard work from us in order to make them successful. And then I look for those medium-sized rocks across the organization and tend to really try to pull from the other parts of the organization. What are these kind of things that you're looking for? We'll take in you know, 100 of those ideas and maybe get to 10 of them on the year, right? Mm -hmm. That's an area where I want everybody to feel like they've shared lots of ideas um, and that we'll respond to some of them. And then we work hard to try to create space for these little little rocks or the sand in the scenario. And there's a couple things I've done over the years that I've liked. 
we did an initiative that Emily Tate reminded me of the other day uh, called Good to Great. And you, you may remember this too, Tony, but we would get people together and we would just walk through our product and we would really focus on the polish and the small things that could really drive the product and just make it feel a little bit better. These were often things we could do in less than a week's time. They were really quick and we'd build a great big list of them. And then we would dedicate some time and iteration. We would say, this is the good to great iteration. And for this two-week period, we'd go to that list and we'd pull off the things that we thought were you know, quick and easy to do. At the same time, they were valuable. And we would just spend and time box that and say, we're going to spend two weeks against that. That worked extremely well for us. And I think it's something that you know really anyone can do. We also would do something that we called developer's choice, which was really... Um, to acknowledge that there were great ideas inside our engineering organization that, that may not necessarily be getting to us. Mm. And we wanted to create space for our development teams to feel empowered to make the changes that they wanted to make um, and that maybe they just didn't want to bring to us. Maybe they were too small to really for them to think that they were important. Um, but we always felt that was really important. We got a lot of value out of that. So, again, we would time box and say, hey, for this iteration, it's developer's choice. As product, we're just going to sit back and uh, relax here for these two weeks and you guys have got it. You're going to decide what you do. You're going to write the stories for it. You're going to lay it out and execute it. Um, Our teams always love that on the engineering side. But one of the things that I always found interesting as product is that the appreciation that they gained for some of the challenge of our job Mm. uh, when they went through and tried to size things or tried to break them down into smaller components uh, or tried to articulate why something was valuable we always came out of that with uh, some of the developers coming by going, hey, uh, I really appreciate everything you guys do because that was actually pretty tough. <laughs> and uh, that's important. It's really important. I had read a tweet. It was Jeff Gotthelf, who was one of my favorite writers. He wrote Lean UX and uh, a great book called Sense and Respond just recently. And he was talking about if the team owned the budget, would they hire the product manager? Oh, Interesting. And I I just really liked that, and I've stressed it a lot to my team members, which is you got to be value. You are, you're a member of the team, and you got to provide value. You're not inherently there. If you're not bringing value to the team, uh, then they're not going to spend the budget on you. And I really liked that mindset for the teams to make sure that they understood they're an important, valuable member of the team, and they bring a, a unique skill set to the team. So what gets you up in the morning? What are some of your passions right now? I'll, I'll maybe like work and then personal. And, and because we already talked about vinyl, I'll leave vinyl alone for a little bit. But <laughs> uh, at work right now, it's it's about how to set good objectives and goals for the company. I'm really trying hard to figure that out. We've adopted an OKR process. So spent a lot of time researching that, trying to understand. To me, you think about um, as you get further Uh, in your career or higher up in the organization, it really becomes about putting people in the right place, uh, helping point them in the right direction, and then getting out of the way. And uh, in order to do that, you have to set clear goals. You have to have a good scoreboard. We talk about measures or we talk about key results. To me, I think of that as a scoreboard. And I use that analogy a lot at work. And I always think about what if you had no scoreboard in a game? What would have? What would that basketball game look like if there was no scoreboard? 
you'd have no idea who was winning. People would generally kind of quit playing. Like, then they're just kind of goofing off. Or what if halfway through the third quarter, the the scoreboard stopped keeping score and the game continued? What does that create for the teams on the court when the scoreboard isn't working or it's never really set up at all? And if you put that analogy to the organization and you kind of think about that same thing, if you're not setting clear objectives and you're not setting measures and you're not setting clarity around the key results that you want the team to drive towards, then there is no scoreboard. And that, if you can envision what that basketball game would look like in your head, that's that's probably a lot like what the organization looks like if you don't have a good scoreboard in order to keep that in mind. So I've been pushing really hard and spending a lot of time just researching and trying to understand how others are doing this uh, in order to get that set up inside the organization. I think we've made great progress. I'm excited about what we've done, but we still have a ways to go and it still doesn't feel perfect to me. So my my passions and my my background thoughts uh, spend a lot of time coming back to how do I set up that scoreboard properly. That is really cool. I I know nothing about sports, and I mean nothing. <laughs> I know there's a ball involved with basketball. Because <laughs> um, it's in the name. Yeah. <laughs> Only because it's in the name. Like soccer, I don't know what's going on. And I've never heard that metaphor before, but that is so interesting and insightful. And I think the more we can think of it in terms like that, I mean, I'm, an, I'm a big metaphor guy. Some people work that way. Some people don't. For me, it just starts clicking in areas that may be too nebulous. Sure. All this to say, you inspire me. This is really awesome stuff, but I can't end without my question that I ask every guest, which is what object or thing that you own means the most to you or has impacted your life the most and why? Mm, Non-digital, I should mention. Non-digital. Well, it's interesting. You talk about the the non-digital component. I just finished this book by David Sachs called The Revenge of Analog. And it talks about how physical things are making this comeback into society. That for a while we thought everything was going to go digital. Our books were going to be digital. Our, obviously our movies and our streamers, our music, you know, big one for me, our film, our photography. That all of these things were going to go digital and that no, no physical goods would exist anymore. And the whole book is about how these things are actually making a comeback. And uh, this is a fairly obvious answer for me, but vinyl is is where it lives for me. And I spend a lot of time in reading the the first chapter of the book is about how vinyl is making a comeback. And if if you're not aware of this, it certainly is over the last 20 years. It's really made a push. But I bought this amazing uh, vertical record player. It's Upright. It's from a company in Chicago called Gramavox. And uh, it sits in our living room and plays and spins upright. And my wife got it for me for our 10th anniversary, our 10th wedding anniversary. And we had spent some time talking about what we wanted to get, and we wanted to get some art. And we struggle to come together on what art. We only have like four or five pieces in the whole house because that's how many (laughs) over the last 12 years we were able to align around. And so we were spending time with it. We were trying to look for stuff. We couldn't really find anything. And uh, she comes in and she says, hey, I I found something for you. And uh, I thought that our art could be your records. Mm. And uh, that was just an amazing gift from my wife. You're like, oh, well, what did I get you? Like, (laughs) oh, no, right? (laughs) Uh, But that is, it now sits in our living room. We spend the majority of our time uh, listening to music and uh, 
just you know sitting around as a family playing games and talking and so that's by bringing that into our living room and, and creating that space for it it's really changed a lot of our interaction as a family and and our love of music and then my love of music and vinyl can come out as well so that's probably the thing that i the physical thing that i uh, put the most stock in in our house yeah. that is great yeah the thing that i love about vinyl is when you listen to songs or albums on Spotify, etc. You can skip ahead, you can select your favorite, listen to it, go back, skip forward, go on shuffle. But if you think about how artists create their records, they tell a story from start to finish. And vinyls force you to experience it that way, the way that it was meant to be listened to, much like reading a book. Amen. We should shift this whole podcast and talk about vinyl and yeah. just do the whole thing. But like, <laughs> you know, artists set those up. Side A, side B. There's a there's a whole point of where B sides came from. It came from the other side of the record, and they would most artists, especially those who are making uh, music that relates well to vinyl, and they, they recognize people are probably going to listen on vinyl. Um, create different moods for each side. So side A is typically typically this is like a more upbeat side, uh, and side B is a more mellow side. And there are sides of records. That's how I think of music. You know, side D of the Miseducation of Lauren Hill has three of the most amazing songs in the world on it. And we will, you know, we don't think about putting on particular songs. We, we think about putting on sides. It all goes back to uh, creating experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to thank you again for being here, and I hope we can chat again. Thank you, Tony. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. And. Uh, I think we got into some fun stuff there. Hopefully people get a couple nuggets to take away. We did. And I'll, I'll put your LinkedIn in the show notes so people can find you and stalk you. <laughs> That'll be great. <laughs> and with that, we will call it a week. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, be sure to share it with your friends, family, or coworkers. As always, you can find the show notes and full transcript at xdpodcast.com. Or stalk me on Instagram at xdpodcast. I can't wait to have you back next week, but until then, friends, stay curious. The XD Podcast is part of XD Media LLC and is produced and edited by me, Tony Dosat. Hosting and publication of the podcast is through Buzzsprout.